This is the word of God, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, And a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. That's the word of God. Let me tell you a story uh, to begin about a group of friends, and I'll put a, a picture up on the screen of uh, some of those friends. Growing up in... Uh, elementary and middle school and most of high school, I had a friend group of about seven guys. And I looked through some old pictures today. I could not find a picture with all seven of us in it, but this picture has six of us in it. Uh, and then there's some other riffraff in the picture. So put the next, put the next slide up. There's the six uh, that are part of this friend group that I grew up with, plus one more who I don't know why he wasn't in that picture, but uh, he didn't make it. This group of guys grew up doing everything together. Um, As I was looking at pictures today, we had t-ball pictures, flag football pictures, tackle football pictures, baseball pictures, basketball pictures. We played sports uh, on all of the same teams. We had countless sleepovers at each other's house growing up. Uh, In staff meeting this week, somehow we got on the topic of CC's Pizza. There was a CC's Pizza in our neighborhood. When we were very little, we could ride our bikes there. We had pizza eating contests together uh, at CC's Pizza to see who could have the biggest plate of uh, pizza crust when we were done. We went on trips together. Um, At least one of these guys went to church with me, and a lot of these guys would come on church trips with us. We would go on family vacations with each other, so we traveled together. Uh, We rode our bikes all over Amarillo, and uh, like I said, elementary school at Belmar, middle school at Crockett, High school at Amarillo High School. Uh, it's just a group of guys that, that sort of went through life together. Let me give you an update on the seven, okay, where they're at now. One is the CEO of a pretty successful oil company about two blocks that direction. Um, he, has, he has done well for himself. One is the father of four. This is not me. There's another father of four. Um, His oldest is a senior in high school this year, 
and he works for the railroad. He did that right out of college, still works for the railroad. Uh, he was a good Mormon boy growing up. He married a good Catholic girl, and somehow they found their way to First Baptist Church Amarillo, where he's a deacon. It's a really cool story. I'll tell you that another time, but a really, really cool story. Um, there you go. One is a bartender in Austin, Texas. Uh, last time I heard, he lacked one class of graduating with his bachelor's degree at Tech um, and has never finished that. One class short. Tins bar at a, a fancy hotel downtown Austin. One, uh, sadly, has drugged himself into a basically a comatose existence, almost to a point of being an invalid um, at home with his family. One owns a brewery in the Caribbean. One of the strangest things I've ever seen in my life, he owns a brewery and uh, lives there in the Caribbean and sits on the beach every day. One uh, had family in Arkansas growing up, went back to Arkansas. Uh, he is not much for social media. You don't see much from him, hear much from him. Maybe his dad will post a picture every now and then. He just likes living out wherever he's at in the sticks and hunting and fishing and doing all that kind of stuff. And one is married for 17 years, has four kids, and pastors a church in Odessa, Texas. So there's the seven. It's interesting, and I bet your experience growing up is a lot like mine. It's interesting to look at a group of people who spent an incredible amount of time together. A group of people who had so much shared common experience in life, education, neighborhood, socioeconomic level, community that you grew up in, uh, same friend group, very consistent friend group all through, the, through your, your growing up years, um, get to a certain point in life and take very, very different paths from each other. And you can think about people that you grew up with in life, maybe even siblings, uh, people in your family, and you say, we grew up not just in the same neighborhood and the same school, but in the same house and have taken very, very different paths and ended up at the, the extremes of human experience. I think that's one of the things, as you read through 1 Samuel, that you're supposed to think about when you read about David and Saul. Two guys, very, very similar experience, very, very similar calling from the Lord, who ended up taking vastly different paths in life. And almost every passage where these two guys come up together, you could come back to sort of the idea we're talking about tonight, where here's two guys who could have, you know, on the front end, you predict they end up going the same direction in life, but they just take vastly different paths. So here's a quote uh, to start us off. This is on your notes. Quite clearly at this point in the story, the Holy Spirit brings to our attention David and Saul, setting them side by side for our careful, thoughtful meditation. Both of them chosen for leadership, both of them anointed by the Spirit. But with those two statements, comparison ceases and contrast begins, for everything else in the life of Saul and David is in striking opposition. We see the sun begin to rise upon one life and set upon the other. For one, there is steady growth in grace and in the knowledge of God. That growth is not without hiccups. And setbacks, but over time it's steady growth in the grace 
in the knowledge of God. For the other, there is tragic decline in disobedience to God. Darkness, frustration, sin. And I think about David and Saul and the comparison and the contrast between these two guys. And as we go through this short little passage, we're going to chase a few rabbits. I try not to chase too many rabbits on Wednesdays or Sundays because you can just get lost chasing rabbits. But there's a couple of little rabbits we need to chase just to kind of answer a few questions as we go. And the first little rabbit that I want to chase is to say this to you. I think, I don't know, but I think 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 to 23, I think it actually happened after the David and Goliath story. I don't think it's a mistake that it's put here. I think it's put here on purpose, but I think it actually happened after the David and Goliath story. And there's a couple of simple reasons for that. One, when you come to the end of the David and Goliath story, Saul is introduced to David in a very formal way. And if you read that in light of David joining his service and playing music and Saul loving him, it just seems a little strange at the end of the David and Goliath story. And a second reason is uh, in chapter 16, verse 18, they introduce David as a man of war. If David was known as a man of war, you'd think when he walked into the camp and they're ready to fight Goliath that they would say, finally, a man of war has showed up. You can fight this guy. Instead, they say, you're just here to sneak in on the action and, and spy on what's happening. Go back to those few sheep that you're taking care of at your father's house. I think this is like a plot device. And I don't think the author of 1 Samuel is trying to trick anyone. I think the original readers of this story would have heard this story all their life when they read it written down. And I think we do this all the time in TV shows and movies. We just call it a flash forward. And you see a scene in a TV show or a movie, and it might take you a minute or two to figure out what's going on, but eventually you say, oh, wait a minute, there's like a little time jump here. And they're telling me something that happened later, and that something is going to help me understand this particular story. And I think that's part of what's going on here at the end of 1 Samuel 16. I think the author's giving you a little time jump to something that comes later, and he's doing it so that when you read the David and Goliath story, you're not just sort of saying, well, who is this guy to show up out of the blue? But you know a little something about who David is. Now, I just want to admit, if you were to take it and cut it out of your Bible and put it after David and Goliath, I don't do that. But if you did do that, and then you read it, I understand there's still some difficulties in the narrative and some questions that may pop up. And I'm just sort of laying that out for your consideration. The link between these two stories is verse 13 and verse 14. Look at those two verses. 1 Samuel 16, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And that's the link between these two stories as the author puts this little Little episode here saying the Spirit has come upon David and the Spirit has left Saul. And so we'll just start with this idea. As a result of Saul's continual unrepentant disobedience, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. He was continually disobedient 
and he was unrepentantly disobedient. And so the Spirit of the Lord leaves him, abandons him. How did Saul get to that point? Let me just give you two episodes from his life, and you can go back and read them. First, Saul offered an unlawful sacrifice motivated by fear and pride. You can go back and read that in 1 Samuel 13. They were getting ready to fight a battle. Saul was with the troops. Samuel was not with them. And Saul was supposed to wait until Samuel showed up to offer the sacrifice, and then they would go into battle. And Samuel was, quote-unquote, late, delayed. This was all in the Lord's timing, but he was delayed. And Saul starts to panic. More importantly, everyone in the army starts to panic. They get antsy. They want to know where the prophet is. They think, you know, this is not going to go well in the battle if Samuel doesn't show up and bring God's blessing on us. Some of the soldiers start to defect, and Saul basically panics. And instead of waiting and trusting the Lord, Saul says, look, I know Samuel's the one that's supposed to offer this sacrifice, but I'm going to do it instead. We don't have time to wait for him. So he offers the sacrifice. He's trying to boost morale amongst the troops, but really the heart-level issue for Saul is he doesn't trust the Lord's timing, and he's using, think about what he's doing. He's using worship for his own purposes. I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, not because we love the Lord. It's not because the Lord is worthy of a sacrifice. I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord so I can keep my army with me. That's a bad reason to worship God. We don't worship God to achieve our own ends. We worship God because He's God. And Saul offers this unlawful sacrifice. Second, Saul disobeyed a direct command from the Lord after a battle with Agag. This one was really bad. They fight the Amalekites. They fight Agag, they win the battle, and the instructions for the battle are kill Agag, kill them all, burn everything. You don't get anything, it's all under the ban, it all is destroyed. Instead, Saul decides, although that's very clear, he says, I'm going to keep Agag alive, I'm going to put him over here in this cave, and I'm going to keep the best of the plunder. We're going to burn all the junk And we're going to keep the good stuff. And he thinks he can get away with it. Samuel shows up, and Samuel's question is this classic question from the prophet. Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in a camp of war? You were supposed to kill everything. Why do I hear the sheep? Why didn't you do what the Lord commanded you to do? And at this point, Saul just tells a bold-faced lie. He looks at Samuel and he says, We were going to offer the best as a sacrifice to God which is really stupid. Lies make you sound stupid, right? If you have kids who are just learning how to lie, you know. Lies make you sound stupid. But even as an adult, lies just make you sound like a fool. Because what they were supposed to do originally is burn it all, kill it all as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, well, I'm going to keep the best. Why did you keep the best? Well, we were thinking about doing a sacrifice later. That's what you were supposed to do in the first place. That wasn't your motivation. You wanted the stuff. So he lies. And if you look at verse 24, 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. I feared man more than God. 
And I did what the people wanted me to do rather than what God wanted me to do. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Look, I've sinned, but help me save a little face here. That's a guy who's really not sorry. He's just sorry he got caught. He's not sorry he disobeyed the Lord. He's just sorry for the consequence that's now come into his life. It's continual, unrepentant disobedience, an unlawful sacrifice, disobeying a direct command from the Lord. And the result is, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And I just want to say one thing, chase one little rabbit here as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit. It's interesting when you read that the Holy Spirit is involved in the lives of these men, and at least with Saul, he's coming and he's going. He's there, he's anointing, he's empowering, he's leading him, and then he says at some point, I'm done with you. This is over. There are some believers today who say that can still happen today. You can have the Holy Spirit, then you can lose the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can get him back if you're lucky, but probably not. If you have him and you lose him, that's probably it. I think there's a massive shift. There's a massive difference in the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. I just want to throw a few thoughts at you on this rabbit trail. Things from the New Covenant that you need to think about when you're dealing with the Spirit. Let's put this next slide up. The Spirit regenerates, Jesus says, You have to be born from above. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. He gives you new life. He doesn't give it to you so that he can then take it back. Once you have eternal life, by its very definition, it's eternal. It's not temporal. It's eternal. So he regenerates. The Spirit seals God's people. It's sort of like a a stamp on the salvation of God's people. Right? Your security is not rooted in what you can do for the Lord, but your security and your salvation is rooted in that the Holy Spirit seals you as a follower of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit dwells with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a building where the Holy Spirit resides or where the presence of God resides. The church, the people of God, are that temple, and Paul talks about that to the Corinthians. So when you read about the Spirit coming and going from Saul, don't get yourself all in a tizzy and say, oh man, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Also, don't kick your spiritual heels up and say, well, this is great. I got the Holy Spirit. I can just put it on autopilot. I can kick on the spiritual cruise control, and I'm just good because the pastor just told me I'm not going to lose the Holy Spirit. So, this is great. Just keep these two warnings in mind from the New Testament. I'll let you look these up on your own. Hebrews 12, we just talked about a few weeks ago, but it talks about the discipline of the Lord in the lives of His children. So, if you're a true believer and you have the Holy Spirit, you've been regenerated, you've been sealed, right, and the Holy Spirit's living in you, and you're going to persist in unrepentant sin, you'd better expect that God is going to bring his discipline into your life. 
Not to send you to hell eternally, but because you're his child and he loves you and a loving parent disciplines their children. Hebrews 12 says God will do that to you. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not been sealed with the Spirit, the Spirit is not living in you, you'd better be careful about hardening your heart to the Spirit and continuing in sin because Romans 1 gives a warning that if you continue in sin hard enough and long enough, God might just give it to you. He might just say, okay, that's it. You can have it. You want that mess over me? It's all yours. Have it. This is not going to produce spiritual laziness in us, but it's also not going to produce spiritual fear in us as if we might lose the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit in the Old Covenant here, it comes upon Saul and it departs. But then it gets worse. And I'll just be honest with you, this is a very strange idea we're about to talk about. Look at the back half of verse 14. First, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Second, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We're just going to take one step down the rabbit trail. This is a long trail. We could just, we could take a journey. We could pack a bag and we could go and we could be gone for days and days and days. We're just going to take one step in this direction. How in the world are you supposed to think about the back half of verse 14 that says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul? He takes the Holy Spirit and he sends in its place a harmful spirit that torments Saul. On the one hand, as modern Western people, the idea of evil spirits is weird to us. We don't think about that in our day-to-day lives. People in other places in the world think about evil spirits a lot. In the United States, we don't tend to think about them very much at all. So when you read about there's an evil spirit, a lot of us get a little uneasy and unsure and say, what, what, what is he even talking about, evil spirits? Secondly, it's even stranger that this evil spirit, this harmful spirit, comes not from Satan, but from the Lord. How do you make sense of that? Let me give you two, two quick thoughts. Number one. The Bible occasionally speaks of what some theologians call a divine council of spiritual beings. And this is where we could really go down the trail, and uh, it's a fun trail. This is the trail I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation on, so I like this trail, but we're not going down it. We're just going to look down the trail. In the Bible, different times, Old Testament, New Testament, there is a description of a group of supernatural beings. You can call them angels. You can call them demons. The Bible many times is not even that specific. They're just described as these spiritual, personal beings. Some of them are loyal to Yahweh. Some of them are not loyal to Yahweh. Some of them are in defiance against Yahweh. But they're part of this quote-unquote council of beings. And we could debate the, the function of them and the purpose of them, but they're described in the Bible. You can see a description of this in the early chapters of the book of Job. When Satan and the sons of God come before the Lord, and Satan is described as being part of this council in a sense. He comes before the Lord and there's discussion and there's debate and there's interaction. Uh, the Hebrew wording in this particular passage could describe an angel of judgment So it could describe an angel that, a spiritual being loyal to Yahweh, executing judgment 
on Saul, or it could describe a spiritual being in defiance against Yahweh, but still being used by Yahweh to torment Saul. Here's the one thing that's clear from this passage that we can't debate and we can't deny. This spiritual being sent to torment Saul was under the authority and the sovereignty of the Lord. He's not, he's not a rogue spirit out there messing everything up. The Lord is in control of this, and the Lord sets the limits for this. It's the same thing you see in the book of Job, right? Satan has this idea, he wants to do this, and God says, okay, you can do it, but this is where you stop. I'm drawing the line here. And they have another discussion later, and the Lord says, this is where I'm drawing the line. You're going to accomplish my purpose to this end and not one inch further. And that same sort of idea is going on here in 1 Samuel 16. Secondly, I just want you to note that the only relief for Saul came through the music of David. It's just interesting to think about. Look at verse 23, way down at the bottom of our passage. It says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and he was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. I read that verse, and I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions. I'd like to know, what did he play? What, what, what song did he play? Was it always the same song? Just one song? Or was it any song that he happened to play? I'm curious, is this when David wrote some of the Psalms? Is this when he wrote some of the, the great spiritual songs in the Bible, as he's ministering to Saul, did he sing? Did Saul have a favorite? Did he make requests? Did he give him feedback? I, I don't know. There's just a lot of things I read that, and I think I'd, I'd kind of like to be the fly on the wall, listening to the guy play the lyre and seeing how all of that went. There's not a lot of detail, but the spirit comes and is upon Saul as a harmful spirit. David takes the lyre, he plays it, and Saul is refreshed and he's well, and the harmful spirit departs from him. I'm not trying to get too mystical, charismatic, supernatural. I just want to say music is powerful. That's true for Christian people and non-Christian people. Music is powerful. It's not a coincidence that the longest book in the Bible, square in the middle of your Bible, is a song book. Music. Songs. It's not a coincidence that in the book of Revelation, when we see these visions of heaven, they're singing. They're not just saying things, but they're singing things. Singing often is the, the uh, combination of truth and emotion joined together. You can do that when you speak, but you especially do that when you sing. You see that in heaven. It's not a coincidence that when we gather together, we sing on Sundays. That's a large part of what we do in this room when we gather together. We sing songs together. And look, I've been in Rotary Club. I was in Rotary Club in Kingfisher. We sang together every Rotary Club meeting I ever went to. And it was dreary and dreadful and miserable. And we sang about I don't know what. It's different when the people of God come together. And they sing about things that are true. And they sing about things that they're passionate about. Worship is an important part of who we are. Singing is an important part of who we are. Just one more little example of this. Martin Luther. Think of Martin Luther. You think of the great Protestant reformer, the father of the Protestant Reformation. Luther said the Reformation in Germany will not be complete 
until the German people have two things. Two things I need to finish before I can put my stamp on the Reformation. Number one, they need to have the Bible in the German language. They need to be able to read the Bible for themselves, not through a priest in the Latin, but they need to have the Scriptures themselves. Number two, the German people need a hymnal in their own language. They need the Word of God, and they need to be able to worship God. Those two things in Luther's mind were inseparable. And you see it at least here uh, in, in the life of David. One more little rabbit trail we'll take here. There's an interesting parallel with this story and what you see in the New Testament. I'll just put it up on the screen for you to think about. David is anointed, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He immediately in the story battles evil spirits, and then the next thing you know, he defeats Goliath. You look at the the story of Jesus, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Throughout the Gospels, he's battling evil spirits, and ultimately he defeats Satan. This is the same story being put on repeat. When you read the Jesus story, if you've read the Old Testament, you're saying, man, that sounds really familiar. Where have I read about a young kid from Bethlehem who's anointed with the Spirit, and he takes on the evil spirits, and he defeats the big bad enemy of God's people? Why does that story... Ah, that's why it rings a bell. God gave us a preview of that in the life of David. I don't want you to miss that. Now, let's talk about David. We've talked about Saul and his disobedience and the consequence. Let's talk about David, right? This is the path diverging in these two characters. David prospered because he was blessed with the presence of God. He prospered because he was blessed with the presence of God. Verse 13, they anoint David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. Look how they describe David down in verse 18. He's the son of Jesse. He's a Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. That's music. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. He knows how to carry himself. And lastly, Yahweh is with him. What a great thing to be said about somebody. Right? Of all the other stuff they said about David, that was the most important thing. He knows how to carry himself. He can speak well. He's a great musician. He's brave. He's tough. He comes from a family in Bethlehem. Most important, the Lord is with him. When the Lord is with you, it changes everything. And I'll just give you a few examples to think about in our lives. Think about Jesus promising to be with his people. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right? I have all the authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm going to be with you. Not so you can be healthy, wealthy, happy. I'm going to be with you so that you can do the one thing I'm sending you out to do, and that's make disciples. I'm with you in that task. The apostles, they were changed by the presence of God in their lives. They were changed. When you open the book of Acts, they're terrified. They're hiding. They're cowering in the shadows. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're out in the streets preaching at the top of their lungs. They get arrested a few chapters later and they say, what's with these guys? They're ordinary, un, uh, uneducated bumpkins from Galilee. These guys are rednecks. But they've been with Jesus. They've experienced His presence and has made them different people. What about the church? The church is marked by holiness as the temple of God. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 6. The Holy Spirit dwells among you. And because the Holy Spirit dwells among you as the people of God, as the church, you ought to be holy. You ought to be pure. You ought to be set apart. You ought to be different. As Christians, we have the power to obey, not because of anything good in us, but because of God's presence in our lives. James talks about this. He talks about resisting the devil. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? You draw near to God, and God draws near to you. The presence of God empowers you to obey. Another thought about David's life that I think has application for us is this. The presence of God gives power to ordinary people and dignity to ordinary work. The presence of God gives power to ordinary people like David, like you, like me. And it gives dignity to ordinary work. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Brother Lawrence? Anybody ever heard of this guy? He lived in France in the 1600s. His parents were poor. They were peasants. They didn't have anything. He had no means. He had no education. Uh, He was forced to join the army. Uh, He was captured by the enemy, and he survived a, a life as a prisoner of war. At the age of 26, the war was over. He became a monk. For years, his job was cooking, just cook for everyone else. That's what his job was. And uh, eventually, he got gout, and he couldn't stand. And so they put him in the sandal shop so he could sit down. And they taught him how to mend sandals. So the cook became a, a cobbler. It's just an ordinary guy doing ordinary work. And if you know anything about Brother Lawrence today, nobody remembers him for his French cuisine. Nobody remembers him for the great flip-flops he was making in the 1600s. People remember this guy and they read his book. They read the book, 400-year-old book, by a chef slash cobbler about experiencing the presence of God in your life. And people remember him, not for the ordinary things that he did, but people remember him as sort of a spiritual giant, a spiritual hero. This is one of the things Brother Lawrence said. Look at this quote. The most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons, at every moment, without limiting the conversation in any way. And what Brother Lawrence is saying to people is, you don't have to be in a Bible study to experience the presence of God. You can do it cooking for the monks in the kitchen. You don't have to go on a mission trip or some sort of spiritual pilgrimage to experience the presence of God. You can do it fixing sandals in the cobbler shop. You can experience the presence of God in the oil field. You can experience the presence of God in your classroom. Right? This is a, a discipline, a practice that you've got to develop in your life, realizing that there is no 
sacred, secular distinction, right? We tend to divide life into these two categories. We put church stuff, Bible study, mission trips, quiet times up in the top, and everything else in everyday life goes in the bottom. The cooking, mending sandals, teaching a classroom of kids, going to work, mowing the lawn. And Brother Lawrence is saying, scratch the bottom category from your vocabulary. There is no regular life. There is nothing just ordinary and and secular in your life. God is part of everything in your life, and your job is to learn how to experience His presence in all of those avenues. And I think you see this in David's life. Right? We've talked about some of this already. David grows up working with the sheep. In our minds, that's secular. But it wasn't to David and it wasn't to God. That was holy time. That was time of preparation. When did David have the time to become skillful in the lyre? Sitting out with the sheep. When did have David have time to, to write psalms and to think about God being his shepherd and to think about the glory of the heavens? We talked about that. In previous weeks, he had time to think about those things and write those things out with the sheep. When did he have time to learn how to be a man of valor? Out protecting the sheep. God redeemed that time. It wasn't secular. It wasn't worldly time when he was taking care of the sheep. It was holy time. It was sacred time. And then he traded in his job as a shepherd and he became an armor bearer. Slash musician. Slash Therapist, counselor. Just work, right? Carrying around armor, playing music, helping a guy get through some of the troubles in his life. It's just work. It's just a guy punching a time clock, right? No, it's all sacred. Right? David's experiencing the presence of God in all of these things. Eventually, he becomes the king. And we think David, the king, the great king, the big important thing that he did in his life where he really served the Lord. He served the Lord just as much with the sheep as he did on the throne. Just as much playing the lyre as he did winning battles as the king. Experiencing the presence of God. David gives us a model of what that looks like. And as David gives us that model, here's the contrast between David and Saul. Right? These two guys take vastly different trajectories. Saul tries to use God to further his work. David tries to honor God in the midst of his work. It's completely different for these two men. And the way it plays out in your life will take one of two completely different roads. I think when you look at Saul and you look at David and the Lord says through Samuel, Samuel, what I really need is a man after my own heart. That's not Saul. I'm looking for somebody else. I need a man after my own heart to be the king. You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to anoint somebody. It's going to be a man after my own heart. I think the essence of that really boils down to the way these two men approached their callings in life, the way that they approached their work. Saul's approach is, I have a job to do, and I'm going to use the Lord to get that job done. I'm going to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to do a, a spiritual, religious act of worship Not because God's worthy of it, but because I need to keep the guys in place. So I'm going to use God to control my army. 
I'm going to disobey God when it's going to cost me. I'm not in it to obey God. I'm in it to advance. And so when God tells me to kill the best of what Agag had, I'm not going to do that. First comes my own advancement, my own career, my own agenda, and then God will tag on behind that. David presents you with a different view of work. David's a guy who seeks God for God, not for what God can do for him, but simply seeks God because God is God. Eugene Peterson says it like this, Saul was treating God as a means, He's treating God as a resource, and God will not be used. That's true in Saul's life, and that's true today. 2019, Odessa, Texas, God will not be used, not by pastors, not by churches, not by people in the pew. God will not be used. The worship that Saul offered was undertaken so that the work would prosper. It wasn't undertaken to honor God. It was just undertaken so that his work would prosper, and the consequence for Saul was fatal. My prayer for you guys as you look at these two men started off so similar very similar opportunities and end up taking very different trajectories my prayer for you is that you will seek God for God not so that you can achieve your own end or your own purpose but you simply seek God for God and in seeking him you learn to experience his presence in whatever it is you're doing and wherever you may be whatever stage of life you're in whatever gifting you've you've received from the Lord Whatever your lot in life is, you learn to enjoy and experience the presence of God.